So, Mark. Yes. We need to no talk about magical clothing. Because this really is the core of what we're dealing with today. It's what bonds us all together. It's what unites us as a community. Yeah. If you don't share some magical clothing with your friends, are you really friends? That's why Mark and I just have one piece of underwear that we share back and forth day to day. <laughs> That's so disgusting. And just like... In the rules of this movie, we do not wash it. I hate that. That made me so upset. It's important. You can't wash the magic out, Mark. But they wear them so often. Sure. And they, like, get caught on rusty hooks and things like that. And they go through the mail and get damaged in the mail. Well, the real reason you can't wash them, I I think it's heavily implied in the film, is that they'll multiply, like in Gremlins. Now, there's an idea. But wouldn't that be a good thing? Because then they could each have a pair of magical pants. But is it really magical if it's not traveling? If all pants are magical, no pants are magical. It's the syndrome logic. Yeah, exactly. And given that the pants are cursed, I think you're just multiplying the dark magic by allowing them to be washed. (laughs) Interesting. So you would argue that the pants are a negative magic. I think it's deliberately left ambiguous. Fascinating. There's definitely a case to be made there. Yeah, but... As I will make. We should probably wait before we delve in and start with what we're actually talking about sure are there other great examples of magical clothing in cinema that we should wrap into this discussion i'm a big fan of the elven cloaks in the lord of the rings which also bind a group of people together in that they all share them because they're not overtly magical they don't do anything too crazy right but the fact that they just get glanced over with the eye is cool to me it's not an invisibility cloak right They make it more explicitly magical in the movie where he pulls it over and it actually looks like a rock to the people. But in the book, it's implied that it doesn't transform you into a rock. It just kind of makes you so blended in. I like the subtle magic of it. That's a cool idea. Cloaks, I think, show up a lot. We also get the invisibility cloak in Harry Potter, Doctor Strange's cloak of levitation, which is fun because that one clearly has some sort of brain to it. Like carpet. Not clothing, but the magic carpet in Aladdin weirdly has a personality. Absolutely. But that's because that movie has, like, five Disney sidekicks. (laughs) Yeah, that is the most sidekick-heavy movie, I'd say. Because we've got the carpet, we've got the genie, Uh, we've got the monkey. we got Raja. tiger. Yeah, Raja the tiger. Iago. Iago. So, yeah, five. Don't forget about the Emperor's new clothes. But that's not magical clothing. The that's, point is well, that there are no that's clothes. That's sheer laziness. If you believe, then you can see them. I think it was clear that his people had lost faith in him, and therefore they couldn't see his clothes. What did Even the, the emperor small child think he was doing every day? I don't know. I, he had lost his people. He had I, lost his way. I'm pretty sure it's explicitly made clear that the tailors just didn't want to make clothes. Well, all these folk tales have different <laughs> spins and different takes in different jurisdictions that's a, so. is that isn't that one that hans christian anderson just wrote i do not know i don't know if it's a folktale even i think it's just it's like the little mermaid but i might be wrong about that one no yeah it was just it was written by hans christian anderson interesting what about you do you have any examples of magical clothing that you think we should include in this uh other than the emperor's new clothes which i guess we'll let the jury leave out as to whether or not those are magic i would say the shoes in like mike i forgot about that movie time. saw when i was nine years old uh i think i actually tried to throw my shoes over the telephone wire after like during a thunderstorm during so they would a, get struck by well, lightning before the thunderstorm hoping that they would get struck and uh unfortunately it did not happen 
I'm sorry. I just couldn't reach the telephone wire. That was my first exposure to the idea of throwing shoes over a telephone wire, and then you start seeing it. Me as well. Like, everywhere. All these neighborhoods are filled with people just trying to be like Mike. Everywhere. I assume that's the only reason. That's the only reason? You are just trying to be like Mike. They're playing basketball. Who doesn't want to be like Mike? And that is really the question of our age. I assume we're all talking about Mike Schnurr, right? I was talking about Michael Jordan, specifically the dude who is able to stretch his arm about 30 feet. I'm assuming that's what he's famous for. He's like a real-life Mr. Fantastic. I was thinking of Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. You wanted to murder people. Uh, as the homecoming king of Wakanda. Okay, but before that, go to a museum and murder people. Murder incidental. I know this is an anti-murder podcast, but the murder was incidental to the theft. It seems like they planned pretty in-depth for that murder. They had the fake EMTs and everything. That is true. Their intention was to commit murder. Killmonger is one They of even the- pretended that they weren't going to murder the guy when they let him run away, and then murdered him. Killmonger is one of the most interesting villains to come out of movies in a while. He is. He's also a murderer, though. And that's true. We are anti-murder. Explicitly. Where did that- which movie did that come from? Vertigo! Okay. I can never remember, because we watch more than one movie with murder. Jimmy Stewart turned down- my girlfriend Midge to chase after a murderer. She's a murderer. She's a murderer. Anyway, any more magic clothing you want to talk about? I think that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to beat the shoes from like Mike. It's true. So, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast. We're looking to figure out the clues, uncover the secrets, discover the mystical energies that govern our society. And one of the And things, our clothing. And our clothing, exactly. And one of the things that we're digging into is one of the most important questions of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation or if it's just terribly ill-advised or if it's in only half of the four movies that we're covering today we will dig in we will see what is there it's our mission it's our quest it's the little thing that we'll write letters about to our friends i write about it to mark every time i pass him the one pair of underwear in the apartment we share he writes the letters instead of discussing i just kind of shove it under his door we don't talk at all when we're not recording no even though we live together anyway this week we are discussing the 2005 film The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, based on the novel by Anne Brashares and directed by Ken Quapis. And to help us walk through this, we are joined by our very good friend, Tim Lyons. Hey, everybody. I thought this movie was a huge hit, but it did not make that much money. No, it wasn't a failure by any means, but I imagine that Warner Brothers expected more from it and the amount that it's in the cultural conversation like everyone knows the sisterhood of the traveling pants i think part of that is from the books which had been big hits okay there were originally three of them and then a fourth after a gap and then a fifth one after a much larger gap and so by the time this movie came out the books had been around for four years and had been a big hit among like middle and high school girls mostly okay that makes more sense but i had not seen this movie Nor had I. And actually, this movie was chosen by Tim. So, Tim, what drew you to uh, the sisterhood? So, in middle school, I will say, whatever the overall national numbers are on this film, they did phenomenally at Frederick H. Tuttle Middle School. And Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants was, for myself and for the other guys at Tuttle, the ultimate make-fun-of-girls-for-their-literary-habits book and make-fun-of-them-for-their-film-going-tendencies Oh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Plants, 
please. I'm reading Orson Scott Card. Thank you very much. And as a, a film year- adaptation that does not work. Well, that I did not see because I was worried about exactly how it would come across. Although I thought Harrison Ford looked like some pretty good casting. I cannot recommend it. Ben Kingsley is doing something in that movie, and it's interesting, <laughs> but it's a boring movie. The kids do not work. And really, the best part of Ender's Game is the conversations that go on at the beginning of every chapter, and you don't know who's talking, you're trying to figure it out. Which, in the movie, you can't really do that, because you have actual people talking. Also, Orson Scott Card is one of the worst people. He's a bad man. <laughs> he is a bad person. Uh... Seventh grade Tim Lyons in 2005 was not aware of the controversy surrounding Orson Scott Card and just thought he wrote fun books about kids going to space. In the meantime, over the years, I came to realize that my view of certain films, certain books, such as Sister to the Traveling Pants, may have been based on sexist stereotyping. And I was bound to revisit these films and these books to see what was the fuss about. What were people reading these books talking about them, talking about the characters, saying what their favorite was, and was there any merit to it? And so I read the whole book. Oh, you read the book? I read the book. I thought about doing it. This is becoming kind of a common refrain, but then I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. Well, I'm a very staunch book-before-film advocate, at least for myself, and so I read the whole 350-page book earlier this week, and then I watched the film. Very similar, with one notable exception, which we'll get to later. I read a little bit about it, by which I mean I read the Wikipedia page for the book. That'll probably do it. So I think I know what the changes are, but I am dependent on the Wikipedia summaries. I like the, uh, well, I guess we should get to the romance. Okay. So you're on this quest. Are there other movies that you've watched as part of this reevaluation of your middle school taste? I have not. Like I said, this was kind of the preeminent, you know, favorite film of my female classmates. So I thought this would be an ideal gateway into watching these films and reading these books that I may have missed out on in the meantime. I feel like I've recently started to look into the, you know, the rom-com genre, other stuff like that that was made fun of as a kid. And I have learned you can't paint it with a broad brush because (laughs) there are great parts of it and there are terrible parts of it. I made fun of Golden Girls a lot as a kid. Turns out it's one of the greatest shows. I also made fun of Twilight. Turns out it's a dangerous representation of what a teen romance should be. Twilight... And I know we talked about this like a year ago, is really one where I started to question, like, maybe I didn't give Twilight the credit it deserved. And then I watched the movie and was like, maybe I gave Twilight too much credit. Great baseball movie, not so great in other respects. (laughs) That baseball scene is weird. Because it's just begging to be a music video. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie, just because of how out of place it is. It's very strange. I feel like they had a different director for the baseball scene, and then they hired them to recut all of Suicide Squad. (laughs) That is exactly right. So actually, speaking of movies that you would have maybe seen in middle school when this came out, I want to paint you a picture of summer 2005. This movie comes out on June 3rd, right as the summer box office season is getting underway. For a little context, the movie had a budget of $25 million. It ultimately made $39 million. So like Mark was saying earlier, it's not a runaway hit. It's not a failure. But you can imagine this very popular book. Warner Brothers probably had bigger hopes for it. Anyway, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants opens at the highest point it'll ever get at the box office, which is in fifth place. Here's a little picture of 2005 for you. At number one, in its second week, DreamWorks Pictures, Madagascar. That movie is just, it haunts me. And you know- That movie made so much money. I saw that movie in theaters. So that must have been one of the films that I was favorably comparing- 
to Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. This movie is, is better than Madagascar. This, this movie, movie is better than Madagascar. I will say this now. I'm on record. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I'm sorry, 12-year-old Tim Lyons is better than Madagascar. It's a much more interesting movie. Oh, definitely. Madagascar is one of the most boring movies we've watched. This movie resolves its plot. Madagascar does not. There is no plot to resolve in Madagascar. Sure, but bare minimum, like, get them home. And Madagascar ends with them, get on the boat, and it's like, okay, they're going home. And then the penguins are like, no, they're not. They're going nowhere. The boat doesn't work. And then the movie just ends. So they're still stuck on Madagascar. The plot hasn't been solved. But aren't both films, in a way, sort of alike? Aren't they both about making a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to find yourself, and then finding that what you cross the Atlantic Ocean for... Was pants? Was pants. (laughs) Maybe I'm just thinking of Sister of the Traveling Pants. Uh, At number two is the Adam Sandler remake of The Longest Yard. Again, that's that's a quintessential middle school guy. Dude, it's got football... It's got Adam, Adam Sandler. Sandler. Chris Rock's in it, right? Yeah. Yeah, Chris Rock. Number three, another great middle school movie, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. I actually think... That movie might be better than this. I've talked about this. I think the, the younglings scene where Ewan McGregor has to cover his mouth because he's cracking up, I don't think there's a scene that bad in this film, so I'm going to categorically exclude it from being considered a quality film. So... Apples and oranges. Alright. I think Ewan McGregor is locked in in those movies for the most part. I love that performance. Google Ewan McGregor stifles a laugh on YouTube. There's a 10 second clip in which he tries to deliver a line, but literally cannot finish it without covering his mouth. And you can tell this is probably the 50th take that he's done of this. And Natalie Portman is like, let's just go home. I will definitely check that out. Finally, before we get to... Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants at five. In fourth place, we have, I'm sure, another Tim Lyons middle school favorite, Cinderella Man. Boxing, Russell Crowe, one-two punch, no pun intended, absolutely. One of the many movies about boxing as a sport for white people. That's really the central tension in boxing movies. There's a lot of movies about white people in boxing, boxing against people of color. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the history of American boxing. Yeah, and then Creed kind of flips the switch, which is why I appreciate the concept of Creed, even though I hate watching boxing movies, because boxing is terrifying to watch. It's pretty horrifying. Anyway. (laughs) So, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants is the story of these four friends who find a pair of pants that magically fits them all, despite the fact that they have different body types. Our four friends are Amber Tamblyn, Alexis Bledel, America Ferreira, and Blake Lively. All of which are like 25 when this movie's being made. So I have their ages. So in 2005, when the movie is released, Amber Tamblyn is 22. By this point, she has already been on General Hospital for several years, and she was the lead of Joan of Arcadia on ABC, a TV show about a woman who receives instructions from God on things to do and then does them. I feel like my mom liked that show. But I'm not certain, because it feels like a show a lot of moms would like. It's the 2000s version of God Friended Me. It was before its time. It was a touch by an angel. Exactly. Yeah. So that's Amber Tamblyn. She's 22. Alexis Bledel is the oldest of the cast. She's 24 when this movie comes out. And she is deep in Gilmore Girls. This movie comes out between seasons five and six. We've got America Ferreira, who's 21 at this point. She had been in some indie movies. She'd done some individual episodes of TV. But her big breakout 
is going to be Ugly Betty, which doesn't come out until the next year. Lastly, though, we've got Blake Lively, who is the youngest by a good bit. She's only 17 when they shoot this, and she has not broken out yet. She hasn't really done anything, and Gossip Girl won't start for two years. So this is like her big breakout. Which is crazy, because I think they're making a new Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, a third, and you figure Blake Lively's got to get top billing in that. Absolutely. The tables have turned. America Ferreira has decent odds because of Superstore and the How to Train Your Dragon series. I think Blake Lively is the more bankable name. Blake Lively is probably the more bankable name, but I think America Ferreira is definitely a second. Yeah, definitely. I think today it's probably Lively, Ferreira, Bladell, Tamblin. That would be my guess. I mean, Blake Lively's Ryan Reynolds' wife, so he just has to tweet out, like, go see Sisterhood. If it doesn't make $50 million, I'm in the doghouse. 200,000 retweets and people lining up at the box office. So I, I mean, think they're set. She's married to Detective Pikachu himself. I know. If he can't solve the case of getting her top billing, no one can. It is interesting that this does seem like a late sequel, obviously, but it's one that appears to be driven by the actors involved, where it's Amber Tamlin and Alexis Bledel in particular have been on social media being like, we want to do this, help us pressure a studio into letting us do this. Which makes sense, because they are both the least busy, I'd say. Sure. I mean, Bledel has Handmaid's Tale. Oh, right, I forgot she was in that. She's really good in it. Yeah. Blake Lively has another baby on the way, I think. I think so. And then she was just in A Simple Favor, which was pre-both babies, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I mostly know this because Twitter occasionally has like, look at how hot she still is even though she's pregnant. Pictures of Blake Lively, which are always uncomfortable. Indeed. Did you see, this was a couple months ago by the time this episode's coming out, but since we talked about the relationship between Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher, when we talked about No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits, (laughs) there was a story in like one of the entertainment tabloids about the two of them splitting up that was not true. And the two of them did an Instagram video (laughs) commenting on it with Mila Kunis being like, look, we just have to live this way. This is how I'm feeling. So (laughs) sorry to break it to you. It's pretty funny. I'll send it to you. I... We'll be excited to watch it. But I do want to take a moment while we're talking about the leads, looping back, to acknowledge that I believe Blake Lively is the youngest. Maybe it's Amber Tamblin, but... Blake Lively is the youngest by several years. Yeah. Because she's 17, the next youngest is America Ferreira, who's 21. And she looks the same as she does now. Which is both like, look at how young she looks now, but also, I thought she was the oldest. Do you think Eric will use that in his uh, inevitable criminal prosecution? (laughs) I don't think that'll work because he is a counselor at a camp for teen girls. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, he's getting fired if this ever comes out. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking that too. Like, there are possible criminal charges here. I don't know how the Mexico of it all affects it. I don't know how the Maryland law affects it either because different states have different Romeo and Juliet laws. Yeah, if he gets extradited, the laws of Mexico aren't going to matter. That is true. He doesn't even need to be extradited. He's in the U.S. He's back for school at Columbia. The movie also seems to have forgotten that it's established that he is going to Columbia, and then later in the movie, he's returning to Columbia, which very much confused me. Oh, in terms of, like, is he already a student, or is he, like, going into college? I don't think the movie cares. I assumed he was, like, already in college. I thought she said, I heard you're heading to Columbia this year, or something like that. Well, she could have heard wrong. That is fair. She seems a little shaky on how everything at this camp works. No, she seems willfully 
ignoring everything, how this camp works. It seems weird that she would, like, seek out this place and get almost to the point that she's leaving before figuring out that it's a girls' camp. Speaking of things that are weird about this camp, en route to the camp on the bus from the airport, everyone on the bus is singing La Bamba. I refuse to believe that a bunch of white girls at any point in time know the actual lyrics to the verses of La Bamba. I know literally the words La Bamba. I probably would struggle with the full melody, and yet every single person on this bus knows every word to the song. That took me out of the movie, and I never came back. They didn't have lyric sheets in their hands or anything. My best guess is it's considered the camp song, and they're all returning campers. But Blake Lively is singing it too, and she's never been to the camp. Maybe they were sent a packet, mailed a packet a month before they left for the camp. So it's like band camp or something where they send you the music in advance. It's important that you have a song to all sing on the bus. And you have to respect local culture, which there's no reason for this camp to be in Mexico. So that the production crew can hang out in Mexico? It is just a field on a beach. I don't know why a soccer camp even needs to be on the beach, because it doesn't seem like they get much beach time. It was They run on the beach, and running on sand is harder, so you get stronger. I will say, in the book, the one reason it might plausibly be in Mexico, I think part of the reason is to show that, like, the girls are all over the place. Two of them have left America. Like, it's not just one in Greece. No, no, no. America is one of the girls who leaves. uh, Correct. (laughs) Right. Two of them have left America. One of them is America, and that's why Tibby feels so left out. (laughs) But also, there is a bit of lampshading going on in which Bridget, when debating sleeping with Eric, says... We'll, we'll get to this also, but in the books, Bridget is 15, and she is... So it's worse. <laughs> so it's worse. Although in the movie, when she says, I'm 17, it does not sound like something a 17-year-old would say. It sounds like someone with a fake ID saying, I'm 21, to a bouncer or bartender. But the point is, she's saying to herself, I wonder, like, I'm 15, whatever age he is, is that even legal? What is the age in Mexico? To kind of lampshade, like, all right, forget the whole legal thing, all right? We're going to assume in the in the universe of the sister of the traveling pants, the age of consent is not going to be an issue for this couple. So she says she's 17. I'm pretty sure we either know she's 16 or even 15 because one of them is just getting her learner's permit. We are told that at least one of them is 16, and we know they were all born within a week of each other. Right. So unless maybe... That week, week passed. has passed and one of them is now 17. She was born first, so she is the oldest. But the movie then would just be ignoring the fact that all of the other girls have their birthday. See, if we didn't have the thing where they have to have time to mail each other these pants around the world, what they should have done is set it over the course of that week and see how they all react differently and structure things around that birthday chaos. Although their birthdays are in September because they call themselves the Septembers. In the book? In the movie. Really? I missed that. It's a, in the very beginning. All the birthdays are in September. There are like a lot of rituals flying pretty fast at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> yeah. There's Especially a lot. Especially the candlelit seance to inaugurate their new pair of pants. Yeah, I was really interested in like the cult aspects of this film. I wanted them to like pretty early animate the pants. Like the pants like come to life and like the zipper opens and like flaps like a mouth and tells them what they need to do. Like in Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. Where the pants become sentient. Sentient pants. It's what we need. Mark, how did you not bring that up for magical clothing? Because I just remembered it when you talked about pants. Well, they weren't magical so much as technological. Yeah, Jimmy Neutron is a genius. And a boy. He's also a boy, and he invented them. I believe that's the first Jimmy Neutron episode, if not the movie itself. 
I'm not sure. Well, at this point, we are talking about Jimmy Neutron, <laughs> so... so maybe we should start working our way through the romance of this movie. Now, every week, we take the romance of whatever film we are discussing, we break it down into the five points that summarize it and give the best way to talk about what's going on here for our analysis, for our evaluation of its believability. Right. So this week we're talking about The Sisterhood, which is a teen horror film in which uh, I believe a demon invades a sorority and turns them against each other. A film that is available for streaming on Amazon Prime, so we considered watching that instead and just telling Tim we had it wrong. But instead we did watch The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and Tim did too, so as our guest, you're in charge here. Walk us through the romance of this film. Okay, so as established, there are four sisters in this film, and two of them have romances, and two of them do not. So I'm going to focus my romantic analysis on the two that do, and show how each of the two follow a five-point arc. But I feel like I would be remiss in talking about a movie that has exactly one wedding, which it ends with, to not discuss briefly that romance as well. So the Albert and Lydia romance, which is one of the girl's fathers and newfound stepmothers. Yeah, so this is Carmen, played by America Ferreira, and her father is Al, played by Bradley Whitford, who is currently about halfway through his time on The West Wing, and his new lover, Lydia, played by Nancy Travis. Bradley Whitford, I think, is the most ridiculous character in this film. He's absurd. He is the absent-minded professor times 57. He He is out of the loop to the point that he becomes morally wrong. So in Get Out, Bradley Whitford's character says he would have voted for Obama three times if he could. I think in this movie, Bradley Whitford's character would have voted for Lincoln Chafee three times if he could. Did you hear the thing that Bradley Whitford said where when he first read the script, he didn't realize that line was a joke? In Get Out? No, I didn't. And he tells that story laughing at himself now, but he's like, and then I realized that's exactly why Jordan Peele had cast me in this movie. (laughs) So Albert and Lydia, apparently, as told to Carmen, meet when Lydia picks up her phone at dinner while dining with her kids. She never picks up the phone, but this one time she picks up and it's a wrong number. It's Albert calling and he's trying to call someone else. And somehow out of that, they get a date. This movie only exists because cell phones don't. I don't believe this happened. This did not happen. This is a made-up story. They were embarrassed about going on eHarmony, so they made up this ridiculous story and are winking at their kids, telling them, okay, you're in the loop. This didn't actually happen, but this is family canon now. I'd buy that. That makes sense to me. That sounds exactly right. But what's crazy about it is that he then doesn't tell his daughter about this at all until he's rolling into his driveway and his fiance Lydia, that she has not known about, is walking out the door to hug her. Who also seems to believe that Carmen knows she exists. Oh, very much so. Because that is a thing a rational human would tell their daughter before she met her new, like, soon-to-be stepmother. Exactly. She really does nothing wrong in this movie. The kids don't do anything wrong, either. They, I would say, the, the, dress scene. the dress scene is pretty damning. The dress scene is bad, but I'd put that on the dressmaker. No, their mom and the daughter are pretty complicit in that, too. The mom in particular. The mom in The daughter mostly stands there. That's true. Uh, The daughter does laugh with her friend as Carmen walks by in the hallway. That's bad. I'll have to rewatch. Or don't. (laughs) Then all four of them are sitting down for a happy family meal when the 16-year-old is missing. I do want to say, speaking of the wedding scene, there is a scene in which at the wedding... Yeah, so the movie ends with Bradley Whitford's wedding to Lydia. And... Carmen shows up at the wedding, despite being mad 
She leaves. She comes back at the very end, decides she should be at the wedding. Bradley Whitford says, hey, I need you. And they stand up and they hug. And it's a beautiful shot. And overall, I think the cinematography in this film is solid. Except, as they're embracing, if you look to the right, there just is one guy that just happens to be in frame. He's a random guy. We've never seen him. We'll never see him again. He's about 75 years old. And he's just grimacing for 30 seconds straight for the entire embrace. It's not supposed to be funny. I think they realized it was in the shot, and if they cropped it, it'd be weird. So they just kept it and hoped that no one would notice. I didn't, so. Yeah, this movie is kind of weirdly directed at times. The transitions are a bit on the nose. Like when we go from one soccer ball to another. Yeah, and when they showed a shot of the stars, towards the end, I immediately assumed that they would pan down to the stars in Greece or something. And it was the same sister, and I was just like, what? Ken Quapis has done some good directing, particularly on television. He directed a lot of early episodes of The Office, for example, and did a really nice job. But his film career is decidedly spottier. I will say, I have to give him credit for this. Before I watched this film, there was one thing I was looking for, and it was going to make or break the film for me. And it was scenes of the pants, specifically at the beginning, being put together. All the great put together the object in question. It's like watching the beginning of a Tim Burton movie with all the elaborate opening titles. Exactly. In Child's Play 3, you have Chucky getting reassembled. In Game of Thrones Season 4, you have Tywin Lannister making the sword. And in this, you have the pants being created. We don't see who's making them, by the way. So it could be some dark magician. We just see the folds coming together. You just blew this movie wide open for me. (laughs) There's no reason to believe that's what's happening, but that is now canon. There's no reason to believe it's not happening. I do want you to go through your, these pants are evil. Yeah, if we start talking about the romance, will you explain the evil take to us? Absolutely. Okay, so five points of romance of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Looking at the romance for Bridget played by Blake Lively, and Lena, played by Alexis Bledel. Take it away. So the five points I have labeled introduction, escalation, obstruction, consummation, and resolution. The five points of every cinematic romance. Arguably. For this, I thought it was especially fitting. So we'll start with Bridget. Should I go through, should I do Bridget all five, Lena all five? Or Up to you. I, do? I guess I'll do introduction and we'll cut back and forth. Okay, so introduction. Introduction. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't speak Greek very well. Well, we'll have to work on that, won't we? We have Bridget. By the way, sorry to interrupt you again. The premise of this movie is that the four best friends are going to be traveling to different places over the summer. And so one of the ways they're going to stay in touch is by mailing this magic pair of pants that fits all of them to one another and when you mail somebody the pants you also have to tell them like the amazing things that happened to you while you were wearing the pants it's a way of staying in touch so bridget goes off to soccer camp in baja california the romance with eric her camp counselor begins when she notices him he's running on the beach with a bunch of campers and she joins him and runs up to first place because she's the best athlete in the camp And because she wants to run alongside Eric. He's apparently, within the universe of this film, a good-looking guy. It's kind of like the anti-Chariots of Fire beach scene, because no one in this scene has good form. Blake Lively's arms are... Her elbows are crossing to the opposite sides of her body, and yet she is somehow in first place among all these world-class soccer players. We don't know that. This could be a camp for remedial soccer. (laughs) That's true. She happens to be an average soccer player who's just sandbagging her way through this camp. I do want to point out the fact that both of the romantic interests in this movie are not attractive. 
It's like the casting agent only looked at torso shots because they're super muscular, but their faces are just off. Well, to be fair, you know who's also only looking at torso shots? Bridget and Lena. Accurate. (laughs) Although, it's a little bit harder for Lena because she's got to imagine that torso beneath those giant sweaters. Well, no, the first time she sees him, cutting over to Lena's introduction to her romantic partner is when she falls into the water in Greece, where she is visiting her grandparents. She almost She was like standing on a pier and tipped over because she was, oh, she was painting. Yes, but she falls for no reason. This is like what I had, the problem I had with Frozen. I call it clumsy female protagonist syndrome, in which a film, in trying to make its protagonist relatable, often more the case with female leads than male leads, just simply makes them clumsy in an attempt to make them more relatable and less perfect to their audience. So she falls twice in the first 20 minutes for no reason. First off the mule, then off the pier. She really has no reason to fall off There's the pier. There's nothing that it's weird. It. She's just I, sitting there and falls. She like kind of, you could see her like leaning to get a different look at this boat she's drawing, but it's not enough. So she falls off and she falls in the water and her jeans like immediately get pierced through and stuck on this like iron rod. So she is actively drowning. Because of the jeans. The jeans are holding her down. That is my point for why the pants are cursed as to Lena. So that's point one of curse. That's a curse point one. So love point one and curse point one. So Kostas, out of nowhere, rescues her, brings her onto his boat, and has her touch a fish. Just a handsome hottie showing his fish to her. And he asks her, do you dance better than you swim? And you may say, Tim, that's offensive. You're not Greek, and you're trying to imitate a Greek voice by just not speaking well. To that I would say, that's exactly what Michael Cady does. He is an American, he is not Greek at all. But he plays this Greek person in the movie by simply doing a vague foreigner accent. The character also would not have a Greek accent. He was raised in Chicago for 12 years. He lived in Chicago for the age of like 1 to 3. From the age of nothing. His parents went to America right after they got married. Okay, so he was born in Chicago and then raised in Chicago and then at 12 moved to Greece and suddenly he has not a Greek accent, just a foreign one. Well, perhaps he was homeschooled. It would be more fun if he had a Chicago accent. Maybe that's what half Chicago accent, half Greek accent sounds like. And he actually played it perfectly. And we should feel bad for ragging on him. I would love for him to have just had the thickest Chicago accent. It would have been uh, pretty fun. He's just talking to her like (laughs) about... not Chicago I stand by it. (laughs) You were doing New York. I don't know. I'll skip ahead to plot point three for Lena obstruction is we're skipping past point two skipping we'll come back to point two all right we'll just do it this way plot point two escalation no one sits near a smelly fish market unless they're waiting for someone um well i don't know what you're talking about i mean i just came to sketch that old church over there may i lena costas sees it also throws me off because it's spelled k-o-s-t-o-s but they all say costas in the movie or costas whatever I, I said Costos while I read the book. Just don't overthink it. Okay. Costas sees Lena waiting for him at the fish market. She says, oh, I wasn't waiting here for you. But like five seconds later, basically admits it because she was drawing him. He then follows her to the ocean and they swim together, followed by a five for fighting montage of shopping, moped riding, fishing, and sketching him by a windmill. You know you're in love when five for fighting plays. I was actually thinking of you guys while the montage was playing more than anything else. I was like, this is made for Will and Mark. There needs to be like ten more of these montages in the movie. There are a lot of montages in the movie. There should be more. 
The music choices in this movie are fascinating. They're blissfully 2005. When Unwritten plays while the soccer people are jogging on the beach, I lost it. That was the best moment of the movie. As soon as you got the opening chords, I was like, I'm all in. So, was Unwritten originally from this film? No. I think it was It was her first single, wasn't it, in the U.S.? Unwritten was released in 2004. And it is on Natasha Battingfield's first album, which is called Unwritten. That's really funny. So they just threw in, like, what had been a popular pop song the year before into the movie. Yeah, and with, like, the target audience for the movie. It's funny, because usually the movie is supposed to sell the single, not the other way around. So moving on to Bridget's part two, we have Escalation. So Lena's Escalation was the montage, of course, as all romances escalate. Bridget... Eric watches Bridget's soccer game, and they flirt afterward. He said, And she's, like, trying to show off in the game. She's not playing her position. She's going for glory, trying to score goals. He says he came to check out the competition, and Bridget says, you're looking at her, which was a pretty awesome line. And then, right when you think she's hit the sweet spot of cool lines but not trying too hard... Like, she, flirty but deniable? Exactly. Right where you want them. Then she pours her water bottle all over herself. Like and it's like shaking a, her head back and forth like a mermaid. Like a L'Oreal kids ad. Probably just a L'Oreal ad to withdraw the kids. <laughs> but again, she's 15, so perhaps. I hate it so much. That was one of the most insane moments in this movie. So, plot point three, we have obstruction. The climax. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. I'm not drinking. But if you don't dance with me, I might have to start. Lena is staying with her, I think I said grandma before, and they call her grandma in the books. In the movie, it's Yaya. So Lena's Yaya tells her- Which is weird, because the Yaya sisterhood is a different movie. Frequently confused. Do they also have pants? I don't know, maybe that's their divine secret, is that they share pants. this group certainly has divine secrets. Divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood's traveling pants would be a great crossover film. That's probably what the third movie is. I would not be surprised. So- Yaya tells Lena that Kostas and Lena's families are enemies and that she can never date him. She finds out about Kostos because after Lena basically drowned, Kostos gave her his shirt to wear so that she could be wearing something dry. And then Lena took it home and threw it in with her laundry. So her grandma is like, whose shirt is this? Are you with a boy? And then Lena says the name and grandma's like, never speak to him again. And vaguely in the background, you can just hear. And the evil step cousins start snapping. I was desperate for people to start breaking into West Side Story during that part. But we never really find out that much about it. It's funny because there really could have been like an actual conflict here like oh she does have a real choice to make between this guy that she really likes and her family but instead it's like a guy that she met over 24 hours and her family's feud goes back like two generations and it's like fish sales and it's stupid so there are no real stakes to it and it would not in all in any way indict costas's own personality right he's not like complicit not in complicit. terrible things meanwhile we have bridget so bridget and her friends sneak out to the cantina because the coaches have Saturday night off, finally. And in a horror movie, you think, oh, great, this is where, you know, people start getting slashed. But instead... No, they have to have sex first. Oh, that's... That, well, well, we're getting there. We're getting there, but... But instead, it's just some dancing. Uh, they start dancing at the bar. It is worth noting, to this point, Eric has largely appeared uninterested in her. Like, maybe kind of looked at her sometimes, but has not really engaged with her flirtation. 
I'm not sure about that. He didn't need to watch her soccer game. They weren't going to play for days. And yet he comes out and then specifically approaches. Well, she goes up to him. That's a good point. It's definitely not an invitation for her to sneak out when he and the other coaches mention the cantina. It's not. I should mention that when he mentions the cantina, she says, oh, he said it so I would hear it. But in the movie, I don't know how much we're supposed to believe that, but it seems like she has daredevil-level hearing to be able to hear, like, two tables over that he mentions that they're getting Saturday off. Yeah, her claim that he's mentioning it so that she'll go is obviously false. But she gets her friends to sneak out and go to the cantina. So they start dancing. Oh, she says the line, why don't we dance? And he says, no, I can't. And she's like, Which is the correct answer. He should also say, get out of here and go back to camp. And she says, what's the matter? I'm not drinking, but if you don't dance with me, I might have to. Which doesn't really make sense, logically. I don't get why she would have to start drinking if he specifically didn't dance with her. Eric deserves to be fired just for what happens on this night, let alone for what happens later. So they start dancing... Because apparently he hasn't taken logic yet at Columbia University. Uh, she leaves no room for the Holy Spirit. And he, after a few seconds, says, I can't do this and leaves. I also, we've been talking a lot about complicity. He's sitting with his buddy at the table. And his buddy says nothing when the girl walks up. His buddy is also presumably a camp counselor. But just like smiles and like tips his bottle in a toast. To Eric as like, he gets good up for to you. Dance. You're gonna go <laughs> dance with a teenager who is under our care. What are you gonna do about it, man? It's just such irresponsible decision making by a character who is quite a few years older than her. I also, it seems implied from the conversation that a bunch of them are gonna go to the cantina, so I'm not sure why they're the only two there. I think it's because in Bridget's eyes, they are the only two there. Hmm, unreliable narrator. That's a whole nother universe that I didn't open up for my analysis. Maybe the cursed pants manipulate her perception. She's not wearing the pants at this point, though. She hasn't gotten them yet. Oh, that's true. So step four is consummation. I do want to say, I thought the pants would be a bigger part of this movie. Yeah. I was disappointed at how the little pants the pants are barely were involved. A thing. But I do really like the logistics of how they travel. We see a lot of USPS or FedEx or UPS. Yeah, there's a lot of mail business. There's a lot of mail going on. I wanted more. I wanted more of the logistics. I would have loved a guy named like Frank who's. You want to see the mailman. Right, exactly. And there's like a whole uh, beast. I guess it'd be an E story arc. And he's trying to like deal with the pants and like. There's a box that he's trying to, maybe like an uh, evil person trying to recapture the cursed pants and use them for for nefarious purposes. I mean, you are making a completely different movie at this point. And the sisterhood has to team up to get the pants back. So is this what brings them all together? The fourth one after the Yaya crossover? This would be, yes. Well, the third one's coming out. The fourth is the Yaya crossover. This, I actually think this would be like the one and a half. Like Lion King one and a half. We see what was actually going on behind the scenes. So we have new scenes with the wizard. Right. Cut between footage from this movie. Right. So it's like scenes we already saw, but like you realize he was just around the corner. And now we have the technology where we could like also digitally insert him into scenes. Slash it's also just a documentary about how mail works. (laughs) It's both informative and thrilling. And also, I think the idea for this is that we have Al, who seems like just an absolute dunce. Behind the scenes, the reason he didn't tell Carmen was because he was so busy trying to make sure that the mail didn't fall into this wizard's hands. So he got distracted. Okay. So it kind of redeems the character. Like, So are we going to CGI into... de-age Bradley Whitford? 
I mean, the fact that he aged up so much between this movie and Get Out leads me to believe that he can be aged down just as quickly. I think, sure, I mean, you do the Michael Douglas treatment from Ant-Man. Exactly, I think that was mo- convincing. I think he mostly just dyed his hair. Like, or he didn't dye his hair, he went gray. I think if you dyed his hair back to this color, he would look more look similar, similar than you'd expect. Yeah. I mean, in this movie, he could be 30 or he could be 50. I'm not really sure. That's really the key to Bradley Woodford's appeal. So, plot point four, consummation. Can't you stay another week? My classes start on Monday, I have to go. I just... I feel like... I know. Me too. I love you, Lena. For Lena, it's the midnight boat tour. Costas has a boat, he takes her out, it's their first ever smooch. She also has, like, kinda snuck out at this point, because she was just, like, sitting inside, wistfully thinking about Costas, and her grandma is like, you might be getting too much sun, and she's like, yup, I'm gonna go outside, and goes off to meet Costas. They then go to a Greek house party. Costas tells Lena he loves her, but just then, her family shows up and drags her away. They're horrified. Meanwhile, we have Bridget. Eric is on the beach. Bridget joins him. He says that she scares him. She says, well, I've been diagnosed as emotionally unstable. Her mom had recently, as the, like in the opening montage of the movie, committed suicide. And so like her being at the camp is supposed to like give her something to keep herself occupied. We're not really, I think the scene doesn't end with them walking away from each other. But the next time we see them, it's nighttime. She goes back out to the same spot at the beach. He's there. And we Cut to, to someone pouring syrup. Cut to someone pouring syrup. But a we all character. know what that means. Um, I didn't know what that means, but I guess now I know. I made a joke that that's what that meant, and then it turned out to be true. That's the Ken Quapis touch when it comes to this film. No other director would have thought of the subtleties of such oozing a... Uh, fluid. Of oozing fluid to recap the night. And then finally we have plot point five, resolution. You're 20, and um, probably soccer stars, huge college, and there's a million guys after you. Promise me you'll give me a shot. So Lena comes home. Does her grandmother waterboard her? Because we see her head being pulled out of its full sink of water as her grandma tells her that she needs to never see this boy again. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that would probably be criminal in the United States, but may not be criminal in the jurisdiction in which it occurs in this film. <laughs> That's a good point. And then her grandma is like, what are you talking about? And Lena's like, I just like this boy. And your grandma's like, really? And holds up her drawings where she's been drawing Costos shirtless. That's kind of a tell. There are like a lot of shirtless drawings of him. Yeah, more than, I guess it's to show the passage of time. But but it is not one. No. And then Alexis Bledel, Lena gives a impassioned speech to Papu. Her grandfather. Her grandfather who apparently has spent the whole summer pretending he doesn't speak English to his granddaughter, but does speak English. But he never speaks English. I think it's more she's speaking so impassionately that he, like, kind of gets the gist. Maybe he understands English but can't speak it. I think that's plausible. Because that is a thing. So Lena jumps on her moped to find him. As he's, like, getting on his boat to go back to college. Because, wait, just like Eric, this dude is also in college. Yeah, he is studying at the university in Athens. Telling a 16-year-old that he loves her. She runs out to the dock. He runs out to the dock. They somehow clear whatever line she would need to have a ticket for. They smooch. 
She says she loves him. I do want to say on the way there, there is a hairpin turn that's 180 degrees on the top of a 100-foot cliff. She's on a moped and easily clears it. And this is the same girl that is just, like, falling off of mules and falling off of docks. And, like, I don't know if it's intentional that, like, she has not only found her courage and, like, what matters to her, but also her balance over the course of the summer. She's, she's driven now by the power of love. Again, clumsiness and poise are character traits and not just physical abilities. Uh, I just realized something. Carmen is never shown writing in this movie. Correct. Ever, not once. But she's a writer. She is the writer. That is her one personality trait she gives herself at the beginning. That's a good point. (laughs) I mean, writing is fundamentally an undynamic thing to show on screen. Yes, but several things like Jane the Virgin have made showing someone attempting to write a compelling thing. This film does not. This film does not. And Sorry, I just realized that and had to bring it up. And finally, for plot point five resolution for Bridget, Eric finds Bridget at her house. So before this, it's worth noting, we know that they poured syrup with each other. And then ever since then, Bridget has seemed like really out of it. She's not happy with the decision, honestly. I think it's a mistake that the movie doesn't show them interacting or pointedly not interacting between the night that they pour syrup with each other on the beach, and then when we find him in Bethesda at the end of the movie. I think we need another scene there to understand why she's feeling the way she's feeling a little bit more clearly. Is there not a scene afterward on the beach? No, we see her get back into her bed afterwards. And then write a letter to Lena, which is unread. So, they're back in Bethesda, and they are all sitting, the four sisters and the dog, are sitting in Bridget's bedroom. The dog grabs the pants... Runs out of the house, runs down the block, and there is who else but Eric. Who takes the pants from the dog. Because so, the dog is now involved in this sorcerer's pants. Like, is the sorcerer a shapeshifter? Is he the dog trying to steal the pants? No, in this the moment? pants are evil and took over the dog's mind. But how would, that's the thing, how would the dog, the dog doesn't recognize Eric. It has to be the pants that recognize Eric. Because if the dog were the wizard trying to make off with the pants, he wouldn't run into Eric. He'd run the opposite direction. Unless the wizard doesn't know about Eric. I think it's too much of a coincidence. Unless Eric is also So the pants the have possessed the like dog? A, the pants have possessed the dog. Maybe the pants are good, but they're controlled by an evil wizard. So the pants, the pants are, are trying, trying to, to help. So this is about the crisis of conscience of the pants. Exactly. And that's why some bad things happen, such as a 12-year-old dying, a thing that happens in this movie, and good things like, what good things happen in this movie? I guess Lena kisses a boy. And she gets some self-confidence, I would say. We should talk about the curse. We already talked about Lena almost drowning. Uh, Bridget making a choice she regrets while wearing the pants. Carmen is wearing the pants in the bridal shop people are mean to her she then we didn't mention this smashes the window of her stepmother and father's house which is in the movie at that point somewhat out of character for her definitely and finally tibby is docked pay for wearing the jeans because the store's dress code violation prohibits them and she's strictly working at the store for money so getting her pay docked is negating any purpose for her being at the store whatsoever yeah, I mean, the pants definitely do not seem like the boon that the girls assumed when they conjured a spirit into them in their candlelight seance. We have do you think that's maybe the problem? Like, the pants were good until they posed too many rules. I think that's it. You can't add rules to the pants. We didn't mention the ten rules. 
You can't, um... You can't double cuff them. If you take them off, you have to take them off. Like, someone else can't take them off you. You can't wash them. We talked about that. Even if they get blood on them, which does occur in the film. That is, uh... Oh, maybe it's only the book. I don't think it happens in the movie. Okay, so this is something that's very different in the book versus the film. In the book, the Costa storyline is completely different. So in the book... Doesn't the grandma, like, set them up? Yaya is trying to set up Lena and Costas. Lena wants nothing to do with it. Lena then goes out to take a bath in some spring that's completely isolated. Costas accidentally bumps into her. Lena thinks... She's, like, naked, right? She's naked. She thinks that he was spying on her intentionally, runs away, runs up to her grandfather, grandmother, and says, Costas is a very naughty boy. The grandmother assumes that something far worse than him spying occurred, tells the grandfather, his grandfather tells Costas' grandfather, and they get into a fist fight, during which some blood gets on the pants. So the feud between the families starts in the book? Starts in the book. I mean, that's a better feud. I mean, it's purely based on misunderstanding, but it's a better feud than just like, my grandpa maybe sold bad fish to your grandpa. But it's not a great look for Lena in the book, because she then spends the rest of the book just not telling anyone that she's accused this guy or led people to believe that he's done this horrible sex crime and lets it go on for like two months without correcting anyone. Yeah, that's not amazing. So I think the movie made the right choice. I lost where we are. <laughs> I mean, we've kind of wrapped things up. Are there any yeah, other big changes from the book? Up. That's pretty much it. So, at this point, we've talked through quite a lot of romance. Two different romances that are between a high school girl and a college guy. Do we find these romances believable? Is it, like, a thing for high school girls to want to date college guys? It has come up in Clueless, and then it I think it comes up in Can't Buy Me Love, too. So, in that one, our lead female is a senior. She's dating a guy who was a year ahead of her. So, they were dating in high school, and then he went to college. It's not her getting together with a college guy. So it's a little bit different. Right. Whereas this movie is people initiating relationships with dudes in college. Right. And these characters are younger than the girl in Can't Buy Me Love. Yes. And in Clueless, she's also... That's like a weird relationship. Yeah. That whole thing is just weird. Uh, I did want to Google it. I thought so. I don't think the boss can dock pay for dress code violations dress code or withholding receipts i don't think it's illegal for that to be a punishment to like just say oh you were late to work i'm gonna take money out of your paycheck because you sign a contract for a specific amount of money this documentary that bridget and tibby were making may have actually incurred some fair uh, a fair amount of fair labor standards act violations as well yeah that might be bailey's legacy is taking down corporate greed at walman's I don't know, maybe it's just the pinch face boss or whatever they call him that is just taking money out of their paycheck himself. Yeah. So, do we find these romances believable? I think it's tough to say that on Eric's end and on Kostas's end that they aren't believable because the movie strictly defines them as by the romances. We don't know anything about Eric besides that he's at Columbia, he's a camp counselor. He's presumably a good soccer player. He's presumably a good soccer player and that he dates Bridget. So on his end, we have to presume believability. And on Bridget... Except that you would hope that he has the good sense to not do this. You would hope, but there are people out there. Yeah, definitely not guaranteed. Right. And on Bridget's end, I think her whole thing is she wants a challenge. She's not really in love with this guy. It's she's here for the summer. Soccer is not a challenge because she's by far the best player at the camp. So what's the only thing remaining? Sleep with the best looking counselor. We are kind of led to believe that she is 
gotten frisky with guys before because the rule about you have to take off the pants yourself is specifically targeted at her. But I guess what we learn is that she hadn't actually poured syrup with anybody. Exactly. And then for Lena and Kostas, it's tough to tell because Lena herself is kind of a blank slate. She's a, a tabula rasa. She's explicitly says it's a tell-don't show where she says, it's funny how Bridget is able to open herself up, but I'm not, and I don't know why. And the movie never tells us why. She just says, I can't open up. It's just how she is. It's just the way she is. Lena is by far the least defined and least interesting of the girls. Yeah, I think she winds up working all right because Alexis Bledel is a very good actor. Right, but she is given nothing. There are no defining characteristics. She is, in theory, the smart one, but it's not like she is at a math camp or anything. So for her, Costas seems to be, there doesn't really seem to be any competition that Costas is competing with on Lena's end. And for Costas, it's, hey, you know, summer before I go back to London, I can throw the old uh, American pretending to be Greek accent on her and uh, see if that works. So I would say fairly believable. You can't do this Chicago thing too much. Do you think they ever talked about deep dish versus Mediterranean pizza? I I hope hope so. so. I hope that's most of what they talk about. I will say, for both of them, it does seem that on the island of Santorini, there are two young people, and the rest are old or related to them. So my theory is that it's a matter of how you look in different lighting, and that if you're, like, up on the top of the mountain, everybody looks old because they're closer to the sun, so they look more baked. Whereas if you go down to the water, then everyone looks hotter. So we're seeing the same people in both locations. This could also be Brigadoon and the pants, which if you remember, Lena flies over with the pants, allow her to enter the town, which otherwise only opens up every 100 years. This is a good take. Costas knows that Lena has the pants, and so he falls in love with her so that she can be his ticket out of there. So is it only by loving him that Costas is able to go back to university in Athens? She frees him. And then he gets back to the university, and they're like, we thought you died... 80 years ago. Your registration is not still active. Just like Game of Thrones, this movie is shying away from its fantasy elements to the detriment of the product. I'm sorry, but your tuition payments were not grandfathered in. You will not be allowed to pay $10 a semester. So if we had to rate the romance of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants on our 10-point scale, where 0 is totally unbelievable, we don't buy into any of it, and 10 is 100% believable, where would we fit this? I think they both get 9s. Because I think a 10 is, I'm watching this, and it's just ringing true. And say, of course, get together already. And then anything below a 9 is where I'm docking points. I didn't think there was anything to dock here. I don't know. I can't really think of anything. I'm not that high on it. I'm not that high. I was thinking like a 7. I think I'm probably in that territory. I think that it's kind of a problem for me that we have two different scenarios where we have dudes in college pursuing, although we can debate how much Bridget and Eric are pursuing one another, but pursuing high school girls. It is, I think, a little bit weird. And if like one of the stories were that and the other one was two high schoolers, I would probably buy it more. But instead, this is just the thing that happens in this world. It is funny how the age difference is presumably identical in the two couples. And is never brought up. But it's never brought up. And one of them is morally deeply wrong. And the other is just a light fling that is never addressed. I guess because we assume we're not led to believe that Lena and Kostas is anything more than smooches on the boat. Right. But like, as you said, there are morally wrong things happening with Eric. And yeah, it's just strange to me. And the fact that then when he comes back and he runs into her on the street in Bethesda, and what he tells her is like, when you're 20 and you're the coolest girl at your college and all the guys are throwing themselves at you, give me a call. And it's like, that is a 
gross and absurd thing to say. I was also waiting for that to be... When you're 20, three years from now, and she says, five years from now, and he goes, what? And there's a record scratch and the credits. <laughs> like, to track someone down to say that to them is madness. It's Because then he leaves. Yeah. That's all he showed up to say. He I flew mean, from Baja, California to Bethesda, Maryland, probably had to go through Dulles to say, call me when you're older, and then, I presume, had to get back to Dulles and take a flight to New York. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like he was going to stay for lunch. I mean, he can't go and meet her father. Hello, father. This is the man I illegally banged at camp. Although, Bridget's father is oblivious enough that he would have no idea. He would probably just be like, oh, person. America Ferreira, you got a haircut. All right. Do you guys think any of these characters are dateable? And we're specifically limiting ourselves to the four involved in our relationships? Yes. Oh, all right. So I'm going to categorically exclude anyone who has not graduated high school yet. Yep. Good call. Um, and and then the other two are actively pursuing high schoolers, so they are also excluded. My answer is no. Costas is the best of the four options. Yeah. He never asks her age. And Alexis, weird. Alexis Bledel is like 27 while she's making this movie. 24. So Costas could conceivably be like, oh, she looks like a 20 year old. Yeah. I'm going to say Linda. Linda's nice, sweet, a little bit out of touch, but she does have a very nice house. You're talking about Lydia? Lydia, excuse me. They have a nice thing going on. They have uh, tennis. I don't know. That's, that's the least worst option here. Who would you date, Will? That is a terrific question. There is... The part of me that always wants to say Bradley Whitford, but I don't want to date Bradley Whitford in this movie. No, he's a terrible guy. He's a very bad dad. I guess Carmen's mom is cool. Carmen's mom does seem cool. She's kind of no-nonsense, but she, like, cares about her daughter. I'm switching to Carmen's She's got mom. a nice house. Carmen's stepbrother, while shy and doesn't say anything, we can't guarantee that that's because of who Carmen is, and also takes the effort to go visit his father, who's suffering with alcoholism every month which shows some strength of character yeah he seems like a nice dude and like when carmen hits him in the face with a tennis ball he's like don't worry about it it's cool yeah because sometimes that does happen on accident yeah but like you can imagine other teenagers being really pissed yeah so i think he might be my answer but that hair he is a creepy blonde an understudy for deaf leopard in 1986 it is very funny how Lydia and her kids look like they walked straight out of a poster for Midsummer. They made them so white, and it was such a great and casting choice. And their clothes choice. are all white. It's very funny. Or like a poster for Get Out. That's true. This could be the prequel to Get Out. So that means that Bradley Whitford's daughter there grows up into Allison Wilmore. I... And the son grows up into Caleb, Caleb Landry Jones. Jones. I can see it. I buy it. You know that kid plays the cross. It's true. So do you guys think, I guess... We already have the answer to both of these. Yeah, neither of these neither couples of them stay together. together. Canonically. I, I hope neither of these couples stay together for legal reasons for all parties involved. Did you read any of the other books? I did not. Okay, so we don't know if these relationships are followed up on at all. I think I'd prefer to keep it that way. Okay, but if you do know, please tweet it at us. Let us know. I am curious. What What's the hashtag for that? That's I was trying to figure together? out. No, because that sounds like we're riffing on They Came Together, which is a different movie. Hashtag sisterhood illegal. I don't know. Possibly our worst. I don't know. I mean, if we want to take up all the characters, hashtag did the illegal relationships and sisterhood stay together? I I think it's just hashtag syrup. I will say I like sisterhood illegal because it kind of sounds like Muppets Most Wanted as like kind of the cool sequel. Should that be the title 
of one of our sequels. The Sisters Take Manhattan. <laughs> the Great Sisterhood Caper. That I'm into. Uh, Sisters from Space. Sisters from Space. Sisterhood Treasure Island. I believe the last movie is just called Sisterhood Forever. That's not Or good. the last book, which I think is just garbage. Yeah, I don't want that. That's the one where Libby dies. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's the fifth book you said? Yeah. Because that one's written, like, way later. Yeah, it's set ten years later. Okay. We ask this every week because it comes up way too often. Tim, Mark, should The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants be made into a musical? I don't know about a musical, but I am remaking this film uh, in a way that tells my story in a way that I probably couldn't tell this story. It's How called- much of it involves you going to see Madagascar? Uh... It'll probably show up there, but it's not my story so much as it's the Brotherhood of the Voyaging Shorts. And we're just going to do the four guys from Stranger Things. You know, they have a lot of chemistry, so we'll have it, you know, a few years in the future. They have some shorts that travel around. We'll make the magic explicit this time because the pants came from, like, the underground or the upside down. So it's set in the Stranger Things it's universe. It's set in the, yeah, but it's like a Prometheus. We're not going to reveal that until the end of the movie. Okay. So this is an exclusive we've got here. Yes, exactly. Because you know what this world needs more of. Let's take female-led films and remake them with men. Because that's what we really need. It's about time. <laughs> it's about equality, Mark. So who plays the sorcerer? Um, the sorcerer, that's going to be... Uh, I mean, I, I hope it's Winona, Winona Ryder. Ryder. Yeah, Winona Ryder. So she's corrupted or she's always been evil? I think she's going to play two characters. It's like um, uh, Twin Peaks, where she looks in the mirror and then the mirror character jumps out. It's her evil twin. It's her evil twin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve Harrington plays Kostas, uh, Billy plays Eric, so, yeah, it's gonna be a huge hit. Stranger Things, uh, hopefully when this episode is released. <laughs> Stranger yeah. Things, colon, the Brotherhood of the Voyaging Shorts. Or I mean, that's got brother- hit written all over it. I prefer the Brotherhood of the Voyaging Shorts, colon, Stranger Things, but the Stranger Things is written in such fine print that people won't see it when they go into the film. It'll surprise them, they come out, and they look at the fine print and say, I should have known. <laughs> so your plan is to have this released in theaters? That's the thing is, if I release it in on Netflix, it is a Netflix property. We're gonna have to figure this out. I guess in theaters, yes. I, I mean, guess it'll go for the yeah. Roma angle and see if they'll give you that theatrical I'm release. Like, yeah, we're gonna. I mean, this is definitely you know, it's gonna be a late December and then mass release in January to try to you know get the Academy to pick it up. You're looking for that Irishman rollout. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Mark, what do you think about making it a musical? <sighs> there are scenes in this movie that could conceivably be turned into musical scenes. But I don't know if we need to bring this movie back. Well, whether we need it or not, in July of 2018, it was announced that a musical adaptation of The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants was in development. A f***ing course. How are they going to do the beach scene, which is the most iconic scene in the film? Are they going to have, like, a treadmill on stage that they're running along? I mean, people could just run in place. I guess so. Or you could use a turntable. But you lose her being the fastest one in the camp, which is the Well, you have some of the people run in place, and you have her run up through them. There's also a lot of shirtless people in this movie. Yeah. We see a lot of shirtless drawings as well. None of of them are drawn by James Cameron. There's a lot of swimming. Well... At the time of the announcement, there were zero creatives attached to this production. It was just corporate people signing papers. Do you think that this movie musical will have Five for Fighting's If God Made You, which was in the montage of this film? I think that they'll do the same move as the Clueless musical, where they take the pop songs that are featured in the movie and rewrite the lyrics to be about what's happening. Fuck that. I can't wait to hear unwritten, rewritten, to be about jogging on the beach. All right. I think we have had enough of this musical idea. I don't need to talk about it anymore. If you've got more ideas, tweet them at us. We love to hear them. Well, I think that 
does it, unless Wait. we have more sisterhood content. Aren't you guys going to do your sponsor plug? Oh, you know, normally we just talk about Square Apron when DreamWorks is here, because I don't know if you know this, Tony Anthony, who is our oh, Tony, liaison. Tony A. Anthony from Square Apron? Yeah. Yeah, I know. You do? Yeah. He's a, he's an acquaintance. Okay. So he's been particularly insistent about our DreamWorks coverage, so we normally save our sponsor copy for that. It's now occurring to me that we didn't do that on our last DreamWorks episode. I I feel like if they're sponsoring your episode, I would... I'd be worried about not plugging them every single episode you air. I mean, Tony Anthony does seem like a scary guy. I think there's a real menace there. But it hasn't happened yet? I mean, it could happen at any... You know, I, I shouldn't speak for anyone but myself, but I, I think retaliation could happen at any moment when you least expect it. Yeah, especially, I mean, Just last year, in general. during our one-year anniversary, he tried to cancel the show, and we're coming up on episode 100 in a couple of weeks, and... If he wanted to strike, that would be a pretty chilling moment. Maybe what we should do is create more delicious websites and put them out into the world. Could we maybe find a way to do that where someone would just mail us a box with all the ingredients that we needed to make a website? Yeah, I feel like there's no better plug than assembling these delicious websites using the freshest ingredients mailed right to our door. I hate it when you buy too many URLs and then they just rot in your fridge and make your apartment smell weird. Like, I just need the right amount. I just need three W's. One H, two T's, one P, one colon, two slashes. And an S maybe, make it secure. Eh, that costs extra. I don't know if I'm willing to spring for that package. You know what else starts with an S? What? Square Apron, the all-in-one platform that can give you exactly what we've been talking about. So go to squareapron.com slash love. Use the the offer code love. When you check out, that lets them know that you care about the show and it hopefully keeps us alive for another week before Tony Anthony decides to seek revenge. Yeah, the more money that you spend at Square Apron, the more likely we are not to be tied to some cement shoes and thrown in the Potomac. That sounds like a great plug, guys. I'll uh, I'll be sure to put in a good word next time I see him. Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And tell him genuinely, if he ever wanted to actually be on the show, we would love to have him. I mean, I'm sure he'd like to come on for a DreamWorks episode. We will uh, see what we can do. That certainly could be a, uh, I guess, a service that you perform for him. Well, uh, on that chilling note, next week we are going to stay in this realm of darkness by covering the chaos that is the film 27 Dresses. I know literally nothing about this movie except that Katherine Heigl is in it, there are ugly dresses, and it is wild. Uh, It's got a great James Marsden performance, who is a guy that I love. He is so handsome. And it's going to give us an opportunity to talk about Katherine Heigl's career, which I think will be really interesting for us. Didn't she ask to be killed off of Grey's Anatomy? She got into some contract squabbles, and that was the result of it. Okay. Until then, when we discuss this in further detail, I'm sure, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on iTunes in particular really help us to become more visible. It helps other people to find the show, and that keeps those square apron dollars rolling in. Tim, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this show? What happens in Mexico stays in Mexico. Or Greece. But it shouldn't have happened in Mexico. It shouldn't have happened anywhere. It also doesn't stay in Mexico because he comes to visit her. (laughs) Will? My strategy is just to throw myself into random nearby bodies of water and hope attractive people will rescue me. That sounds valid. I'd say, if you find a pair of jeans that make you look good, never throw them in the wash. 
Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye now. See ya.